0: Good morning. It's uh, great to see you guys. It's wonderful to be back over here with you guys. Um, Just introduce myself because plenty of uh, new faces. So it's lovely to see you. Warm welcome. Uh, I'm sure you've been welcomed loads already, but I'll just add my welcome. My name's James. I lead the team at uh, New Community across all of our different venues and sites. And uh, it's a a joy to be with you guys um, here today. We're going to be continuing... Um, our Mark series today. We're in part nine, so if you have a Bible, we're going to be kind of picking up the story at the end of chapter eight. If you haven't, don't worry, hopefully we'll all be up on the screen. And I just want to pick up the story really here in, in verse 31 of Mark chapter eight. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, we've had eight chapters of fairly breakneck speed, of hurtling along from one miracle to the next, from one amazing moment to the next. And all of them, all throughout eight chapters, it's revealing more of who Jesus is and asking us the question, who do you say I am? And in verse 29 of, of Mark chapter eight, Peter finally answers. He's been walking with Jesus and he finally recognizes Jesus for who he is and says, you are the Christ. You're the king. Not, not a king, but you're the king. You are the Christ. Uh, but he doesn't really understand exactly what that means just yet. And truthfully, if we're being honest, sometimes neither do we. See, it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus as the king. It's one thing to say, Jesus is the Messiah. I believe you are the king. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Lord. But then there's the reality of what that means and what it looks like for us to follow him as the king. And chapters 9 and 10 that we'll look at a bit next week as well, kind of focus in on this question, on this reality, if you like, of what it is, To follow Jesus, what it it looks like. And these verses give us a real good indication of that. And I sense today, if you're going through life, through something in life right now, there's trial, pain, confusion, difficulty, hardship, whatever, then I I feel like the Lord wants to come and minister to you. And if you're on a spiritual high right now, you know, like everything is good, like every prayer is being answered, like, whoa, Jesus. I feel like the Lord also wants to come and minister to you today. In a slightly different way, because if you're in a if you're in a kind of difficult moment, the Lord wants to come and and strengthen you. And if you're in a whoa moment, the Lord wants to come and just fortify your heart and your mind for the reality. Hopefully, it'll be many years from now, but the reality is, at some point, you're most likely going to face a moment of difficulty and trial and confusion. And there's something about making fixing your roof, if you like, when the sun when the sun's shining, that prepares you for when it starts to rain. And so if the sun's shining in your life right now, the Lord is just wanting to come and fortify you for a moment in the future where it might start to rain. And if it's raining in your life right now, the Lord wants to come and I really just believe strengthen you through these, these few verses. So let's look at, we're going to read from verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Wow. Just pause there for a moment. Peter assumes the Christ, the king, the savior. He's finally recognized Jesus for who he is. And he makes the assumption that this is the king who is going to bring an end to all suffering for God's people. Now, it's really easy to criticize Peter. And we love to criticize Peter. We love Peter, you fool. Pfft, what does he know? But his assumption here is not without reason. The Old Testament, you see, repeatedly promises that a Messiah, a King, the King is going to come, and he's going to end all injustice. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to bring an end to all suffering. Mark, if you remember way back to chapter 1, begins his gospel by quoting the Old Testament and saying, the bringer of the kingdom, the proclaimer of the kingdom, that king, he's here in Jesus. But it's also really important to remember and understand that throughout the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah 53, there's talk of a a servant God who is going to suffer. So you have this talk throughout the Old Testament of the promise of a coming king who's going to end all suffering, but also a servant God who is going to suffer himself. And who this person was, was very confusing to the Jewish people. They never dreamed that this suffering servant and this conquering Christ would be the same person. It just didn't make any sense to them. And so Peter, because of his cultural context, if you like, because of his expectation and his understanding of who Jesus should be, he can't conceive of a suffering Messiah. Just reconciling those two things just doesn't make any sense to him. And he expresses, if you like, what we might describe as the, the heart of immature Christianity. Jesus came so that I wouldn't suffer. That's the, that's the, the heart, if you like, of, of what we might describe as immature Christianity. Jesus is here and Jesus is about making my life better so there should be no pain and no suffering in my life right now. Now, we know that this isn't true. We know that come to Jesus and all your problems go away is nonsense. And yet we so often act shocked or hurt when it isn't immediately true in our lives. And Jesus says to Peter and to us, he says, no, Peter, listen, I'm not going to save you from suffering. I'm going to save you through suffering. I'm not going to stop your pain. I'm going to redeem your pain and I'm going to use it if you allow me I'm going to use it to shape you and bring forth life in your life I'm going to use it to strengthen you and grow you and deepen you and make you more into the man or woman of God that I have for you if you allow me and Jesus tells Peter listen Peter until you understand this reality don't speak for me it says, verse 30, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ until you understand this. He literally says, Get behind me, Satan. Peter, keep your mouth shut until you get this. Stop speaking for me until you understand what it is you're saying. And it's really easy, it's really easy to sit in judgment on Peter. But all of us have certain expectations of Jesus. Now we live in a very different cultural context to what Peter did. Peter grew up expecting and believing that the Messiah, the King, would come and would overthrow Rome and give freedom to Israel. Now none of us, I imagine, or I hope, didn't grow up thinking Jesus is here. Let's aim war on Rome. None of us grew up thinking we'll overthrow Rome. That's what we'll do. We'll get to the Vatican. We'll th- overthrow it and redeem. Is no, that's not quite what our cultural expectations of Jesus is. But we do grow up with our own expectations, shaped so often by our culture of what Jesus is or should be and what he should therefore be doing. What's the biggest idol in our culture today? Like We could have a debate about it. We could talk about because you know, there's tons of them. But I would argue one of the biggest idols in our culture today is that of comfort. Jake is fist pumping at the front. I got it right. I think it's, I, I think it's comfort. Our expectation culturally because of where we live and the affluence that we have and the world in which we are is that we kind of think that everything is going to work out for us. And we throw Jesus into the mix and we kind of go, well, Jesus, I mean, I might not say this explicitly, but Jesus, your job is to make sure everything works out okay for me. And there's no room in our culture, particularly in our Christian culture, I don't think, or very little room, should I say, for hardship or pain or trial or difficulty We experience those things and we think something's gone wrong. Or we look at other people experiencing those things and we think, what have they done wrong? I mean, I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to say that to them. But they're going through it all and I think it's probably because they're not doing it right. Because I'm doing things right and things are working out well for me. So there must be something they're doing wrong. Now, we're probably all far too godly to ever think that. But the reality is we can look on and things don't work out and we think, well, something's gone wrong. Should not be experiencing hardship. Should not be experiencing pain. Should not be tears in my life. It should be joy after joy after joy. That's the Christian life. And here's the thing. Just by being in our culture, we slide, if we're not careful, we slide to a view of God whose job it is, is to make life work out well for us. And we might not explicitly say it, but we begin to treat God a bit like a genie in a bottle or in a lamp. Rub it, ask a few questions, and God will do anything I want. Or we kind of start treating him a little bit like a therapist. God's job is to make me feel better. Or God's job is treat him a bit like a life coach. I've got these dreams and aspirations, and God's the one who's going to help me get there. Or kind of treat him a bit like a personal cheerleader. Like, I just need a little pat on the back, and someone will make me feel better about myself. God will do it. Go, buddy. You're doing great. Or a bit like a financial advisor. Like, I'll put a little bit in and I'm going to get a lot back. Because that's how it works with God. I'm going to be generous because God, bless me, bless me with the gold. Verse 33. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ouch. Honestly, ouch. Here's a question that I think is very sobering that we need to all honestly ask ourselves an answer. What are you going to do when Jesus doesn't fit your expectations? What are you going to do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? Because it is very easy to honor him and follow him when he does everything that you want. It's very easy to honor Jesus when life goes really well. When every prayer you you pray gets answered. When every time you do give, God gives in abundance back. When every time you you do kind of set out with a dream in your heart, God enables it to happen. It's like, whoa, yay, Jesus, love you. But what when He doesn't? Because that's the reality of where faith gets tested. That's a moment, and it's a sobering moment of truth. When God, when Jesus does not meet your expectations, when God does not act in exactly the way you think He should and ought, and it causes you some confusion or trial or difficulty, what are you going to do? You're going to throw up your hands and walk away? And we all say, no, no, Lord. Not me, but the truth is every single one of us know people who have, or we know people who are in the process of right now, maybe you right now are in the process of weighing up whether all of this is worth it. And here's the reality, that even if you're not in that situation, unless we guard our hearts, unless we fortify our minds and choose not to set our minds on the things of man, but instead fixing them on the things of God, then we're in danger of it as well. See, Mark doesn't record it here, but in another situation where Jesus made statements like these ones, a lot of people quit following him. John 6, Jesus says a whole bunch of stuff and his disciples are like, this is hard. And a whole bunch of people stop following him. They're like, whoa, 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 Jesus, what? Suffering, the cross, pain? Yeah, I'm all about the healing, I'm all about the blessing, I'm all about the solid families, but not the cross. None of that not too much and they walk away. And many people assume, sometimes just don't even realize they're assuming, but kind of assume that becoming a Christian basically just means cleaning up your life. And in response, you get God's help and he takes you to heaven. But Jesus said it means offering yourself without restriction to him. It means laying down your life so that you get something greater. And for some, this is too hard a thing. It's just too hard a thing. God, I I will follow you. And I will trust you and I will love you and I'll do everything you say, but only if you do the things I need or only if you do the things I desire or only if you do the stuff that my heart craves and I so desperately want. Now, we, we would perhaps never actually say it like that, but so often what we're actually trusting God for is something that we want him to do rather than trusting him. And there is a very subtle but dangerous and distinct difference. I'm trusting you, God, for this What is this? It might even be a very good thing, but there's no guarantee and no promise of it. And so trusting God for this or that or the other is not the same thing as trusting God. And it's not the same thing as walking with him. And here's a reality. Some of us know this from experience. Some of us are beginning to learn this. Some of us have yet to learn it. There are moments where it's really, really hard to follow Jesus. There are moments where it's really, really hard to stir your heart and worship again. There are moments where it's really, really, really difficult to follow him. But it's incredibly worth it because of the true implications of following Jesus. Let's just read on. Verse 2 of chapter 9. This is the transfiguration. And often when we preach this passage, we're like, I have no idea what's going on. It's actually really quite simple. But often we preach it in isolation. And we need to see it from where it's been and where it's set. Let's read verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Wow. This is the transfiguration of Jesus. And it's this spectacular moment where Jesus is truly revealed to be God himself. Now, to understand it, we need to go way back into the Old Testament for a moment. We don't have loads of time to look at it. But Exodus 33, we have this moment where God comes down at Mount Sinai. Now, he comes down the mountain. If you've ever read it in Exodus 33, if you've ever read it, he comes down and speaks out of a cloud. And everyone is afraid. So Moses goes to the top of the mountain and he basically begs God to see his glory. In verse 18 of of chapter 33 in Exodus, he says, please show me your glory. He begs with God. And God speaks to Moses, verse 19, and says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live wow you can't you can i'll be gracious to you but you ain't going to see me you can't see my face because if you do you're going to die and moses is not able to see the glory of god directly but he gets very close and in exodus 34 next chapter on he he comes down the mountain and his face is shining Because he's been talking with God. He can't see God directly, but he gets the reflected glory of God and his face is shining. The mere reflected glory of God causes his face to shine for days afterwards. Now, let's fast forward back again to Mark 9, centuries later. See if you notice the parallels. We're we're back at the top of a mountain again and there's glory again and there's a cloud again. And there's a voice out of the cloud. Even Moses is back. I mean, how more obvious can you get? But this isn't Mount Sinai all over again. There's one huge difference here. See, Moses reflected the glory of God. Like the moon, right? I mean, I know I'm not scientifically, some of you know this. I'm not particularly good on this kind of stuff. But I think this is right. The moon does not reflect, does not have its own light. It reflects the sun, right? So you look at this moon in the sky, and it's not shining brightly. It's reflecting the sun. That's exactly what Moses is doing. Moses ain't shining bright. He's reflecting the glory of God. But Jesus isn't reflecting the glory of God. Jesus produces the glory of God. Jesus is like the sun. He is the source of it. The light is not coming from off something else to him and out. No, it's coming directly from him. He's not reflecting any light. He is the light. He describes himself elsewhere as the light of the world. And here's the deal. Whilst Moses points to God, Whilst Elijah points to God, we'll get to him in a moment. Jesus doesn't point to God because He is God in human form. He is the reflecting Him. He is producing Himself the glory of God. Hebrews one three says He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. It's this spectacular, stunning moment where. Jesus reveals himself to be God. Light, dazzling light shines forth from him. He is the source of light. It's spectacular. It's stunning. But it also has stunning significance for us. It's not just a wow moment. It's a wow when we think it through for us moment. Because God says to Moses back Exodus 33, you can't look at my face and live. There's a gap between us, says God. You can't get to me because you could not survive my holiness. You could not survive my presence. You could not survive my glory. You can't see me and live. And this, back in Mark 9, this is why Peter is scared. This is why he's terrified. Look at verse 6. It says they were terrified. This is why. And he says, Rabbi, let us, speaking of Jesus, let us make three tents for you, Moses and Elijah. Now, at this point, because we all love to have a bit of a downer on Peter, and because sometimes we like to mock him, like, tents, Peter. All this amazing stuff, and you're talking about tents. What's wrong with you, man? Well, partly he doesn't know what he's to say because he's terrified, but actually, it does seem really daft until you realize that the word translated tent here is actually the Greek word tabernacle. Now, back to Exodus story for a moment. You're keeping up with this. When God's glory comes down on Mount Sinai, they built a tabernacle. And a tabernacle was the place where God could dwell on earth. It was like the only they had to physically build something because the glory of God was so much. If we see God, we're going to die. So they built him a home, a tent, a tabernacle that he could live in and it kept them safe. And it was the ability to, there's God, we're okay, we're protected here. And so what Peter's saying is we need something to protect us. We need a tabernacle. We need to set up sacrifices and and things to protect us from the presence of God because we can't come into the presence of God and survive. But then something amazing happens. Look at verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they don't die. They're in the presence of God himself. Face to face with the radiance of the glory of God. And they do not die. How? Well, they're standing only with Jesus present. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. There's nothing but Jesus. See, Jesus is not just God on the other side of the gap. Jesus is also the bridge over the gap. Jesus is the temple and the tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles because he is the sacrifice and the priest that has ended all sacrifices and all priests. Because of Jesus, we can now know the infinite beauty and the glory of God for ourselves. Not once a year when somebody else could enter the Holy of Holies for us and atone for our sins and and make sacrifices so that they could come and we could enjoy the reflected glory of God. Not just because... And somebody else can go up the mountain and get a reflected glory. And we can go, wow, you look amazing. You must have been in the presence of God. Let May I have a bit of your reflected light? No, 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 no. We now can enter into and know the presence of God ourselves. And we don't have to go through a series of sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for us and has made the way. And here's what's so stunning about this. It's not just now that we don't die when we come into the presence of God. Is that we can now look on the face of Jesus and know the presence and the intimacy of God. And it's in the presence of God that all our deepest longings are met. Every ache of your heart is met fully and perfectly by God, in the presence of God. And if we haven't experienced that, it's because we've not fully experienced Dwelling in and sitting at the feet of Jesus and allowing the presence of God to come and invade us and and fill us and and bring us joy and hope and peace and contentment and delight and everything else that is promised. See the transfiguration, this this is just where it becomes so incredibly stunning. It's spectacular, yes, but it's also very practical. And it's very practical for two reasons. First is it tells us of our future. The transfiguration is a glimpse, just a momentary glimpse of what will fully and permanently be revealed when Jesus comes again for the second time. And this, brothers and sisters, this is our final future destiny. This is where we're heading. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we with unveiled faces beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. One day we will see him like the disciples did on that mountaintop. We will behold fully the glory of God. We will see him. We will be like him face to face. We will see Jesus as he truly is. That's our future. But the event of the transfiguration, this is the second thing. This is why it's so incredibly stunning. It's, 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 the event of the transfiguration is essential for us to understand that life in Christ is not just about some future glory. Although it is, that's where we're heading. But it's not just about at some point at the end, survive it all and you will get your reward at the end. It's not just about that. It's about the fullness of life right here, right now. And to understand this properly... And to understand the implications of the Transfiguration, we've got to look at what's just happened in these few verses within the context of the whole passage. We've got to read on. Because as we read what comes before the Transfiguration, where they're confused and they're like, what on earth is going on? I don't understand this suffering. Why is this happening to me? And then as we have this moment of the, wow, the mountaintop, and as we carry on reading afterwards, we're beginning to learn something of the reality of following Jesus. See, the disciples have literally just had a mountaintop experience. Like, wow, amazing. Nothing, nothing is going to ever compare to that ever again. It's an incredible moment, face-to-face with God. And then they come off the mountain. And what happens when they come off the mountain? Well, they're plunged into confusion. And they're plunged into evil. And there's a whole bunch of problems. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. There's a whole bunch of people arguing. Just had this wow moment and then arguing, falling out. Criticizing one another, complaining. Nye, 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 nye. Like, what? what is this? I've just had that. and Wah. Verse 18. Disciples have been trying to cast out a demon and it ain't working. What's going on? Why can we not do this? And then Jesus comes along and he's the, he casts out the demon without any kind of problem at all. And they are just so confused. It's like What is happening? Flick to verse 30. Let's read through these. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. This is the key verse, verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Just pause for a moment and track the story where we started so far from verse 31 of chapter 8. We go from confusion at what Jesus is saying Why is this suffering? What is going on? I don't understand it. This is not what it's supposed to be. To this incredible moment of the transfiguration, this incredible mountaintop experience, come back down the mountain, what's going on? Confusion, arguing, evil, an inability to handle their challenges, fear, doubt. Verse 24 of chapter 9 kind of sums up all of their experiences. And actually, it sums up so many of ours as well. The father of the child who's sick and seemingly died, he's not one of the disciples, but he kind of speaks for him. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's like, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, I am so confused. I've had this, you just picture yourself, what is going on? Oh, glory of God, this is it. It's all amazing. And then everything's going to be okay now. And then they come off the mountain. And they're like, what on earth is happening? We can't do anything, I have no idea, I'm scared, I'm doubting, I'm confused, it's messed up, there's evil, there's suffering, there's pain, but we just had that. Why is this happening? Mark's telling us something really very important here, of what the reality is of following Jesus. See, the transfiguration is a foretaste, it's a glimpse of the resurrection of Jesus, it's where we're heading, but the journey to get there is not going to be victory upon victory upon victory upon victory. The journey that we get there, the Christian life, the the day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month month out, year in, year out, is going to be marked by moments of trial and pain and hardship and confusion. And mountaintop, wow, oh, it's all going to be okay. What? And then doubt and then confusion. And then mountaintop moment, whoa, everything's wonderful. And then what the fip is happening? I believe, what I (laughs) believe, I believe, what is going on? That's a picture of the Christian life. That is the journey. And there are moments where you think, oh, it's never going to end. I'm loving it. And then you walk out the door and it's like, I want to go, what's happening to me? That's the Christian life. Jesus says elsewhere in John 16, in this world, you will have suffering. In this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will continually struggle with challenges that you feel are beyond you. Jesus says, that's life, brothers and sisters. It's an inevitable, inescapable part of life. But his disciples and we, let's be honest, we do the same. We push back completely on that. So when Jesus first tells them that he's the Messiah and he's going to suffer and die, Peter's like, no way, that that is not how it goes. Christian life, it goes from strength to strength. I was once a loser in darkness and now I'm a winner in the light and everything's going to get better and better and better from here on in, Jesus, and I'm going to grow It's better and better and better. That's what you promise. And Jesus rebukes him. And then they have this mountaintop moment, and now they're more confused than ever. They really don't get it. So coming down the mountain, they've learned some lessons, so they're not quite so bold anymore. Not quite so, hey, Jesus, what are you talking about? They're a little bit more, "Uh, let's just kind of ask a question. Verse 11. I said, Jesus, um... I'm confused, man. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Is that, if you know your Old Testament, that's a brilliant question. Because in Malachi, we're told that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. And when he did come, when Elijah came, God would appear and would make everything right. So they're like, we've just seen Elijah. We've got him. He's saying you he should suffer. And we can say, no, 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 look at the Old Testament. Look, you're wrong here, Jesus. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm going to ask you slightly differently because I've learned my lesson. I don't want to be rebuked again. And they're like, Jesus, um, we don't want to be rude or kind of presumptuous or anything. But, but we just saw Elijah up there. And we know our Old Testament. And, and we kind of know that you do because you're smarter than us. But it does say that when Elijah's there, the day of the Lord's coming. And we just saw you. You're the Lord. So, okay, Day of the Lord and everything, kind of take over Jesus. Like, what is with all this suffering stuff? You don't need to do any of that. And we definitely don't. We don't need any of that because, well, Elijah's been here. We saw him. You saw him too, right? I, I, I offered to make you a tent. You, he was there. I wasn't imagining this. He was there. Now the day of the Lord comes, which means, hey, good news. Quit the suffering stuff. And Jesus looks at them. Verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Do you know what he's saying here? He said, yeah, the new Elijah, that was John the Baptist. What happened to him? He came, he suffered and he had his head chopped off and he died. And Jesus is saying, I'm the new Moses. Moses led his people physically out of physical bondage and oppression. They were in captivity. He physically led them out. And Jesus says, I'm going to deliver you, not from physical bondage and physical suffering. I'm going to deliver you out of spiritual bondage, out of spiritual oppression, and out of spiritual death. But you need to understand this, says Jesus. The way up often looks like down. And to get there to where we're going, I'm going to have to suffer. And if you're going to follow me, so are you too. You know, he says in verse 19, you oh, faithless generation. It's like he's talking to us. I know it's like he's talking to me. Because I'll i be honest with you, I am really happy to teach this stuff. Like I'm all over teaching it. Hey, guys, why do you think life's all going to work out well for you? Like, what's, what's wrong with you? It clearly says it isn't. It clearly says there's going to be some suffering. It clearly says, like, get with the program. It's part of it. I, I love teaching this. It's, I'm like, give me the teaching part any day of the week. I don't actually enjoy living it out. I'm like, what? Come to Jesus, all your problem goes away. It's nonsense. Problems come to me. I'm like, <laughs> I have a meltdown moment. What is going on? I just want to teach it. I don't want to actually live it. And that's what most of us are like. I just want to say it to other people to encourage them. I don't want to have to go and experience it myself. Like for everyone else, yay. God bless you. <laughs> meltdown moment. And he speaks to us today and he says, guys, you need to understand this. Suffering's part of the program. Trial and pain and confusion and doubt sometimes is part of the program. If you're going to follow me, you're going to suffer. And when you do, this is so important, you don't need to freak out. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, says Jesus, I have overcome the world. And the only way, Jesus says, I could come into this world of tribulation and save it is to go through suffering to greatness. And Jesus says, what I'm doing, if you're going to follow me, is what you're going to have to do too. And we agree with this and we're like, yeah, 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 until it hits us. And then we're like, this should not be happening. God doesn't love me. What's going on? How can a loving God allow this to happen to me? And he's like, I told you. I've told you, your circumstances. That's not the basis of my love for you. Look at the cross. Look what I have accomplished for you. Look at the life I've won for you. Look at the promises I give to you. I'm a covenant-keeping God. I've promised never to leave you nor forsake you. I've not promised that you're going to have an easy life. I've promised you that I'm going to walk with you through everything. I'm going to take your pain and your suffering, and I'm going to transform it. If you allow me for my glory and your good, in this world you will have tribulation no matter what, no matter who you are. And the only question we've got, and this is a genuine question, will this tribulation drive you closer to God or away from God? Is it gonna make you bitter and hard and joyless or is it gonna make you deeper and stronger and sweeter? It's gonna do one of the two. And we have no choice about facing tribulation. The only choice we get is what we're gonna do with it. And this is the Christian life. Mountaintop moments in and amongst pain and suffering and trial and confusion and doubt and everything else. And there's a whole lot of mundane too. If you hadn't realised that, a lot of days it was like, I just want to have an exciting life like Daniel, forgetting that basically thirty odd years of Daniel's life or four years of that is not recorded because it was too boring to write down. <laughs> like there was a few moments he had this incredible life. <laughs> no, he just lived a very normal life most of the time and had a few incredible moments. That's the Christian life. But here's what's stunning about the transfiguration. This is all going to end. Is, is the Christian life is not just about a postponement of joy and delight. It's not just well suffer guys there might be some good moments but you're going to just have to suffer but it's going to be worth it in the end you're going to get through the Christian life is and the Transfiguration is a promise not just a future delight it's a future it's a current delight right now as well You see, the promise of God is that even in the midst of pain, difficulty, and trial and hardship, you can know mountaintop experiences with him that are not dependent on your circumstances because you do not need to have everything going well in your life and everything smelling of roses and being wonderful and every single thing being incredible to experience the delight and the joy of God. You can know delight and joy in spite of, because of your circumstances, because that access now to the The presence of God is no longer limited. We have free and full access, especially in moments of trial and confusion. So how do we get there? How do we get there? I just want to end with this because we've got this incredible opportunity to have incredible, wonderful communion with God even when we're going through it. And it's really easy to say that and it's a lot harder to do. Well, especially when you're in the midst of trial and pain. So when life hits, how do we experience table and mountaintop moments well, let's look at a master at work. Flicking your Bibles back to Psalm 143. This is David, a man who knew the presence of God, who also knew incredible trial and difficulty. David gives us a model of how we're to handle pain and distress and how we're to approach God in the midst of it all. And so if, you're in the, if it's raining in your life right now, this is a wonderful model. And if it's joy and everything else in your life, this is a wonderful model to learn for when it hits. Psalm 143, David's in a mess. He's in despair. In Psalm 142, he's just been in the cave. You can read all about it in 1 Samuel 22. He's under strain. His faith is hugely stretched. And by Psalm 143, he's still under great strain. He's absolutely preoccupied with his troubles. Look what he says. Verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to your pleas for mercy in your faithfulness, answer me, in your righteousness. In the midst of despair, he doesn't start trying to seek answers. He doesn't look in on himself. He doesn't go and have a little conflab with everybody else. He comes right before God and he cries out to God. And his cry is not, hey God, fix all my problems. What are you doing? His appeal, his cry is an appeal to God's character, to his faithfulness and to his righteousness. God, you are Faithful, I believe it. You are righteous, I believe it. Verse two, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. This, verse two, is a confession of sin. Sometimes sin gets us into problems. Sometimes it doesn't. The situation you're facing right now, or sometimes trialing, it's got nothing to do with sin. But so often what happens when we face that is we then respond in a sinful manner. Because sin at its root is not trusting God. So when we hit like difficulty and hardship and pain and trial and all that kind of stuff, and we try and lean into ourselves to, uh, to fix it, we're essentially saying, Hey God, I've got this sorted. I'm turning away, which is sinful. And so with confession of sin, God, I, I repent of trying to sort this out myself. I, want to, I repent of not trusting you. I, I want to trust you. And then verse three, he borrows these words from Lamentations, which is a cheery book. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Every phrase in verses three and four is heavy with distress. It's actually very similar language to the language that Jesus used in Gethsemane, which is a wonderful reminder for us that we're never fully gonna be alone. We are never going to go to the, the despair that Jesus went to. We're never going to be in that place because Jesus has gone there for us. We're never fully going to be alone. And so often when we're in despair, we think that we cry out and no one can understand us. No one's going to hear us. But we can have confidence that we will be fully, always fully understood because Jesus has been before. Verse 4, therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. It's pretty bleak. Then verse 5, I remember the days of old. So he's called upon God confessed any sin, and then really gone to that place of reminding the soul, actually, I'm never going to be fully abandoned. Then verse five, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you've done. I ponder the work of your hands. This is not nostalgia. So often when we go through something difficult, we long for it being a different age. I want to be in a time when I was happy. I remember this. Why am I going through this right now? I'd much rather be somewhere else. No, 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 that's nostalgia. It's fruitless. It's pointless. It doesn't get you anywhere. This isn't nostalgia. This is reminding his soul and his heart. This is recollection of what God has done and what God has done in history, in time past. God's done in the world. God's done in his own life and what God can do again. I've seen the faithfulness of God in my life, so I can see it again. I've seen the hand of God at work in my life, so I know I can see it again. And then verse 6, is this wonderful transition. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. In this moment, nothing changes as we'll go on. Circumstances, no dramatic change. It's still terrible, but there's this transition here. David's beginning to escape the prison of his own mind. He's beginning to look not at himself, but fix his eyes on God. And in that moment, none of his earthly circumstances change, but his heart and his soul and his mind has changed. He's beginning to go, okay, it's to you, God, I look. And verse 7, he cries out, answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. He's still under incredible pressure. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. What a promise. The night is not endless. It may be, feel like it's nighttime right now, but morning at some point is coming. For in you I trust. And then three times David prays for guidance. First one, make me know the way I should go. There's a destiny marked out for us. We follow God. He's got plans for us. He has got a future for us. We need to pursue him, believing that what he has for us might not necessarily be what we want or desire, but it is good for us. For you, I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I fled to you for refuge. Second thing he, he, uh, he prays for guidance here is verse 10. Teach me to do your will, which just immediately settles the priorities. The goal is not sort all this mess out for me. The goal is, God, I want to please you. I want to finish the work you've called me to. That settles it. Straight up, teach me to do your will. Not, God, do this for me, but Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to whatever, even if no circumstances change, I'm going to honor you. For you are my God. And then the third, I love this phrase, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Let your good spirit lead me. It just speaks of incredible humility here. So often we want an answer and a direction. I'm in this, give me the way out. There's a humility here that isn't just about being pointed in the direction. It's recognizing I need shepherding along the journey. I need shepherding along the journey. It's not just I need an answer in the direction where to go. I need to be shepherded as I go. Who's, under whose wings am I hiding? I'm taking refuge under the wings of the Lord. He is the good shepherd. He is shepherding me and leading me on level ground. I love that it says level, level ground because it implies, implies that we're prone to stumble, not just stray. Sometimes we can be going in the absolute right direction and we still trip up, still stumble. Life is difficult. We're not straying. It's just, Lord, leave me in level ground because I'm bumping out and falling over For you, and then finishes off with, for your name's sake. Oh, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble and in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul for I am your servant. His life is at risk, but David can look to God's firm commitment. He's never failed him before. He'll never fail him again. We can look to the covenantal promises of God, outworked in fulfillment on the cross of Jesus Christ and go, if he did not abandon me there, he's not going to abandon me now. If he's been faithful to me to this point, he will be faithful to the next. And so this model of David is wonderful. It's a model for us of how we can experience mountaintop moments in the midst of, in spite of incredible pressure and pain and confusion. We can cry out to God, can confess any sin. We can be reminded that we're not alone, that we are heard and understood because Jesus has been there himself. We can meditate and remind our souls of what God has and what God can do. We can stretch out our hands to God, not kind of dwelling on ourselves and our preoccupying ourselves with our own circumstances, but focusing on him. No, we can know that the night is not endless. We can know that God has a future for us and he is delivering us there. The transfiguration, that is where we're going We will see him. We are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. And David settles his priorities and so can we. Pleasing God above all. Not trying to get myself out of a situation, but pleasing you, God, in it and through it. And he recognizes he needs shepherding and we need to recognize that too. None of us can do this in our own strength. None of us can battle through. I'm I'm okay, I'll be fine. No, you won't be. Allowing the Lord to shepherd us as we go and he looks to God's firm commitment. And because of Jesus, all of this is true for us too. So whether you're on a mountaintop moment right now and you just need to fortify your heart and your soul of what is, what might hopefully won't for a long time to come or whether right now you're going through it, we can know this. Where there is a spirit of heaviness, we can put on a garment of praise. Where there is mourning, we can pour out the oil of gladness because of what the Lord has done for us. But let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I thank you for the wonderful reality of this transfiguration. And Lord, I love your word. I love how real it is. Lord, I love that it's not just like presenting a picture of glory upon glory. Thank you that in moments there are incredible glories. And I want to pray for us as a people that we might know incredible mountaintop moments of absolute glory and splendor. But Lord, thank you that knowing you and knowing those incredible moments is not based on everything that's gone well in our life. So right now, Lord, for those who are going through trial and difficulty and hardship and confusion, would you lift their heads? May we be a people who, in the midst of it all, would still see you and see you face to face and know you. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us as a people, that we might be those who rejoice through trial and tribulation. We might be those who who know the nearness and the intimacy of God, even when, especially when we're going through stuff. Lord, for your glory and our good, will you just take the truth of this word and settle it in our hearts and fortify our hearts that we might not think upon the things of man, but fix our eyes upon the things of you, God. Recognizing that you are about a great work and you've called us to participate. And as we enter this Advent season, the, the eager anticipation of the coming of Jesus, may we eagerly look forward to this second coming too. Knowing that when you return, one day, ultimately, no more tears, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more pain. All the wrong things will be righted and we will enjoy you forever. But teach us right now to enjoy you in the midst of trial. That we might not be a people who harden our hearts, but soften them for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Right now, if you're in trial, just open your heart to the Lord right now. Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, would you just come, lift heavy, weary hearts in the name of Jesus. Bring joy in this place in the name of Jesus. May the 16th, Sunday the 16th, as this place is packed out with guests, not be marked by a a kind of false Christmas cheeriness, but by a deep, genuine joy that we as the people of God know that our Savior has come once and he's coming again, that he came, he has not abandoned us and he will not abandon us to this point. May this place and these people be characterized by joy to the glory of God. I prophesy over you right now in the name of Jesus. I speak joy into you right now in the name of Jesus. Not marked by your circumstances, but by the glory of God. I want to pray as people get to know you, they would say, how is it that you know so much joy when there's so much confusion and doubt and pain? And you answer, because I know Jesus who has not and will not ever forsake me. I speak life into you right now in the name of Jesus. Joy eternally. And if you don't know him, you can today. There is an opportunity to turn to him and know him fully. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence with us today. God bless these people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.